heard a story earlier this month. It's a story that starts with a little boy standing in a kitchen. And he's holding two apples, one in each of his hands, just getting ready for a snack. And his mama comes into the kitchen, and she sees him there, and she asks her little boy sweetly, Honey, can I have one of those apples, please? And he looks at her, and he brings one apple to his mouth and takes a bite. And then he brings the other apple to his mouth and takes a bite. And just as his mother is trying to figure out what to say to her son, he holds out the left apple and says, Mama, here, this is the sweeter one. I read this story around the time of Yom Kippur and Rosh Hashanah on the Jewish calendar. It's a common thing around the turn of the Jewish New Year to wish someone a sweet new year, and I think that's part of why this story was connected to it. But it's also a time in the Jewish calendar when, as Reverend Ken explained about two weeks ago in his message, the book of life, according to Jewish tradition, is reopened. And everyone has a chance during that week between those two holidays to look back on their experiences in the past year, to write the start of a new chapter for themselves, to continue our stories and have a chance to not let anyone else, even God's own self, right, even fate, write our whole story for us. And this little story about the little boy was a really good reminder to me of why we may not want to write the end to a story before it's actually over, right? It reminded me of another phrase that I have seen here and there online. It says, love wins, and if love didn't win, it's not the end. How many of you have seen this? pop up somewhere. I'm not sure who to attribute it to. I tried to look, but I started seeing people post it online a little while ago. And I guess that most of us maybe have heard the first part, right? How many of you have seen Love Wins anywhere, right? Yeah. Anytime you go to Target at this point, right? It's on t-shirts and sweatshirts and coffee mugs and pens. If you're like me, that is, if you are kind of a church and theology nerd, You might have heard Love Wins for the first time in 2011. That's when the author and former pastor, Rob Bell, wrote a book, published a book, called Love Wins. It was a book about a pretty simple religious belief, the idea that love is the winningest force in the universe, that nothing is actually more powerful than love, that it beats out control, or domination, or fear, even judgment, or punishment. It's about the idea that God's greatest strength is not justice in the end, even, but love. It was a little bit controversial in Rob Bell's world. That idea is something that we preach here in our Unitarian Universalist congregation all the time. But at the large evangelical conservative Christian megachurch where Rob Bell preached, 
It got him fired. If you didn't hear Love Wins back in 2011, then you might have heard it pretty soon after that online. I don't think Rob Bell started the hashtag Love Wins movement, but I'm not sure who did. I just know that I started seeing it, especially in the kind of spiritual or Christian-adjacent blogger world. I know that Glennon Doyle, an author that some of us are familiar with here, she wrote for the blog Monastery at the time. She started picking it up, writing about this idea that love wins even in the small, ordinary struggles of our regular daily lives. That love is a force of good that can redeem and heal and make things all better. It's a beautiful idea. But if you hadn't heard of Love Wins by 2015, you heard it all over the place on this day. This is a picture from June 26, 2015, in front of the United States Supreme Court. It's a picture of the day that same-sex couples in the United States won the fundamental right to marry in our country. In the first Six hours after that decision, hashtag love wins was treated, t- tweeted Sorry, 6.2 million times, more than a million times per hour. That's probably when Target started paying attention. It's <laughs> my guess. And it's great, right? I remember still the first time I walked into Old Navy and saw, I'm pretty sure it was this exact sweatshirt, love wins. I can buy my universal theology now at the store, right? Sweet. How lucky we are to be alive right now, right? Great. But it was also around that time when love wins started just showing up everywhere and became this ubiquitous phrase that people were using to mean sometimes political things, sometimes deeper things, sometimes very ordinary day-to-day kinds of things. I also then started to see people asking, what does that mean? What does it mean to say that love wins in a world where we know that sometimes cancer wins or addiction wins? What does it mean to say that love wins when children are born every single minute into unsafe homes? What does it mean to claim, to rejoice, even in this idea that love wins when institutions that we've trusted we now know have covered up or brushed aside abuse or brutality, that people have carried pain with them from the harmful actions of others, sometimes for decades. What does it mean to claim that love wins when sometimes it's so clear that love is not winning? What does that mean? Love was not winning the night that Dr. Christine Blasey Ford was assaulted. Love was not winning that night. Dr. Ford is someone you may know and have seen a lot of. Not her in the sweatshirt, the next one. She's someone that you might know and have seen a lot of in this next slide here. You've probably seen her face before if you've turned on the news at all in the last two weeks. She's a California psychologist. She's a professor. 
She is a woman who contacted her congressional representative earlier this month to share that she was sexually assaulted as a teenager by the nominee currently under consideration by Congress to the Supreme Court, Brett Kavanaugh. Dr. Ford was sexually assaulted at a party in 1982 when she was 15 years old. I was sexually assaulted at a party in 2003 when I was 19 years old. I know because so many of us have shared it this week, whether online, publicly, or privately. I know, honestly, unfortunately, statistically, that I'm not alone. I know that in this room and also in the community of people who are listening to this podcast, that there are many others who have personal stories of days or nights or mornings, for some of us months or years when love was not winning. And so what do we do with that? I've never shared that I'm a survivor of sexual assault from this pulpit before. It has come up sometimes. Some of you have asked me, and I have told you. Once or twice, it's been relevant for me to talk about it in a springboard, a small group. But I decided to put it on social media last week, which is the true sign of giving up privacy over some detail of our lives, right? And I was surprised that I wanted to. It came to me with a lot of clarity in the moment. It was in response to this criticism that Dr. Blassie Ford has been facing about why she didn't report her assault at the time. And I was watching so many people, people I knew and people I didn't, people I loved and trusted and respected. I was watching so many people share their stories about why they didn't report their assaults at the time. There's another hashtag, why I didn't report. And as I saw all those stories, it was like I could watch, I could see happening the last of any shame or embarrassment that I carried washing away. And I wanted to join that chorus of voices because I knew that I could, that I could speak up to. There are literally hundreds of very valid reasons that people often don't report their sexual assaults. You can check out that hashtag if you want to read them all. But the short version, our culture is so messed up about sexual violence and assault. We are so caught up in a tangled mix of shame and fear. We have so much aversion and discomfort around this issue. And because of that tangled mix of all those feelings, many times when people do report, they are ridiculed, they are punished, they are blamed for their own abuse, or they are completely ignored. And the rest of us, we all see that happening. And therefore, many of us never report what was done to us. Because we see that people are harmed and dehumanized again in the telling. And we would rather not be harmed and dehumanized again 
It's just this vicious, awful cycle of love not winning. But last week, I felt like I was watching us break out of that cycle just a little bit, more than I had ever seen before. I don't think that we're at the end of this issue, that we've solved anything. But the sheer volume of survivors speaking up, and even more importantly, survivors not putting up with any attempts to further demean or defame us for our choices, survivors not taking on the shame, but instead putting it squarely right back where it belongs, the accountability on the shoulders of those who harmed us. I could see so many survivors owning our stories in a new way. Seeing something reflected back to us in the overwhelming way that only social media can actually do at that scale. That this shame was never our shame to carry. And so I decided to be completely open about this part of my history, believe it or not, out of a sense of hope. I felt hope. When I shared. Because the truth is, I have seen love win in the midst of pain and struggle. I've seen that it's not a zero-sum game. I've seen love start to win in small ways as soon as the morning after my own assault. When one friend, just one friend among many but a friend I will never, ever, ever stop being grateful for, looked me square in the eye through my own minimizing and my own self-doubt and said, what he did to you was not okay, Lee. I am so grateful for her. And that was a moment that love was winning. And now I see more and more people every day who are willing to say that and be that for each other. It wasn't okay. It's not your fault. And it doesn't have to be this way. Love wins. If love didn't win, it's not the end. We can think back to the mom in that story I told at the beginning of this message about the boy and the two apples. She paused. She just paused for a bit with her son. We saw in that story how just that little bit of space that she made, that choice she made to allow for what she might not know, changed the whole story. A colleague of mine, another UU minister, the Reverend Gretchen Haley, She shared with me this week that she'd been trying to imagine, trying to get creative, just trying to imagine how the events of these past couple of weeks might have been different. If Brett Kavanaugh had just allowed for a tiny bit of space, if he could find it within himself to pause before rushing into defensiveness, taking a moment to pause, even though something I'm sure that he has longed for, has worked for his whole life, is right in front of him, just taking that moment to pause. 
to perhaps allow the slightest opening for some humility, that maybe his memory is not perfect, that maybe he doesn't have all the information, that maybe even unknowingly he made a mistake. Another writer online took that creative exercise even further. A woman named Kimberly Johnson, who's an author and a healer who works with survivors of all different kinds of trauma. She wrote something kind of incredible. She wrote an imaginary apology. She dreamed up what she would want to hear from someone like Brett Kavanaugh. I'd like to read it to you. I am so incredibly sorry for the pain I have caused this woman, that this memory would be with her after all these years. I don't remember the night in question, but I am mortified to think I might have done this. I don't know because I binge drank too much in high school. I didn't know how to handle all the pressure. It got to me. I come from a religious family, and we didn't know how to deal with sexuality. No one did. I'm ashamed when I look back. I have some deep regrets. From now on, I will be part of the solution. So my daughters won't have to grow up in an environment like I did. I will do whatever it takes to change the way that young men Young women, young people come of age in this culture. What is possible when we allow some space? When we don't rush out of our fear or our shame, our aversion, to try to lock down that ending to our stories? What kind of repair or rebirth What kind of new start might be available to us? What kinds of things that might seem unrealistic as responses become more realistic as we do them? Become quite literally real as we do them. Maybe one day this kind of response will become the norm. Maybe one day, on a day after that, even responses like this will be less and less necessary. Because maybe one day, things will actually become different. Maybe one day, it will be easier for us to answer that question, what does that mean? Because it will be easier for us to see how love wins. Because I hope we can all see that we are love's accomplices that we can be on its side. We are the ones who bring us closer and closer to that day when love will win because of our own actions, our own behaviors, and our own responses. The author, Arundhati Roy, has her own way of saying this. She says, Another world is not only possible, She is on her way. On a quiet day, I can hear her breathing. 
May we have some quiet days ahead, friends. Amen. And may you live in blessing. I invite you to join me in the spirit of prayer. God of our lives, greatest power in the universe, who never is not with us, just like the sun, though we may not always see it, though it may rise and set. We all arrive this morning and leave this morning from and to so many different places with so many different experiences behind us and ahead of us. May we trust and may it be borne out that this is a place where we can be seen, that this is a place with these people where we can be heard. And may we go out today feeling stronger, a little bit, than we were. May we feel the support behind us for all of the new life that is before us. For these prayers that I have spoken and for the prayers that each one of these people is silently carrying on their hearts right now. May they all be heard. And may we say amen.